Maine Calling on Demand is made possible in part by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org learn. And by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. Today on Maine Calling, the latest from the State House. The legislative session is underway and bills up for discussion range from housing to reproductive rights to gun control. A special commission investigating the lead-up to the Lewiston mass shootings is gathering testimony, and there's a proposal to place restrictions on paramilitary training in Maine. I'm Keith Shortall, and today I'm joined by Maine Public's political pulse team, Chief Political Correspondent Steve Missler, and State House Correspondent Kevin Miller for a closer look at some of the issues that are front and center in Augusta. We'll examine some of the proposed laws that your elected representatives would like to see sent to the governor's desk or disappear from sight, at least for another year. And as always, we want to hear from you. Main Calling is coming right up. This is Maine Calling. I'm Keith Shortall. The legislative session is well underway, and there's no shortage of issues to address and bills to consider. Today, I'm joined by our political pulse team to talk about the latest from Augusta. With me, Steve Missler, Maine Public Radio's chief political correspondent, and Kevin Miller, Maine Public State House correspondent. We invite you to join the conversation as well. Are there particular bills you're following? What do you think are should be the priorities this session? You can send an email to talk at mainpublic.org, post a comment on Facebook or Instagram, or just give us a call. The number 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. Let's start with a timely news development. Gentlemen, Governor Mills today will announce at 1 o'clock her choice for the placement of a port facility to support the floating offshore wind industry. She had asked the Department of Transportation to assess options for this and will reveal that choice uh, today. Kevin, this has been at the center of some controversy. Why? Well, offshore wind turbines are massive structures. They can be much bigger than the wind turbines we see on land. So it will take a large space and an absolutely massive crane. And we're talking about a crane that's 700 to 800 feet tall to build these. So that's one big reason for the controversy. But the other reason um, is that one of the areas the state is looking closely at is Sears Island in Searsport, which is now largely conservation land. Uh, the other leading contender is right next door at Mac Point, which is already home to a petroleum offloading facility and a cargo port. Uh, that, that's been the, the big fight, whether it should go on land that the main Department of Transportation already owns on Sears Island or on Mac Point, where the state would have to potentially buy or, or lease the land. And then there's just the, the bigger controversy with lobstermen even over whether offshore wind uh, should be allowed in the Gulf of Maine. We heard from activists this morning in a statement criticizing Mills for what they say is her decision to choose Sears Island over 
Mac Point. It, it, uh, if it is Sears Island, um, do you expect that that might stir more opposition and, you know, I know it's speculation, but possibly legal challenges? Yes, yeah, certainly. This is not going to be, no matter what the governor announces today, this is not going to be the end decision because anything she does that is going to kickstart a whole new process, they'd have to get federal permits and state permits. So this is not the end of the game by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, there's there's quite a bit of opposition, especially from uh, groups like the Friends of Sears Island um, and, and some of the other environmental groups. And I would expect that there would be challenges to this. And you mentioned the crane. This is like, a um, just to describe a little bit about what the project is it's a support facility right so so for offshore wind needs some kind of place to land on land to uh to to repair and construct and uh, maintain these 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 uh turbines yeah yeah so offshore wind is is regarded by many experts as kind of one of the best resources of or best sources of renewable energy particularly up here in the gulf of maine where the wind pretty much always seems to be blowing strong, right? Uh, the Mills administration has been a very vocal proponent of offshore wind for some time, but this project would be a port where the major components of the offshore wind floating turbines would be assembled before they're hauled out to the deep water spots where they would be anchored to the sea floor. And it would be potentially around 100 acres or so, uh, involved probably lots of heavy equipment. And again, there's going to be at least one one large crane that uh, estimates I've seen would be much larger than the, the largest crane we see at Bath Ironworks now. Wow. Well, we'll see what happens. And no doubt, uh, of course, we'll be covering that uh, throughout the day. Let's start with some of the other major issues at the center of new legislation. Um, Steve, in, in the wake of the Lewiston mass shootings, we expected to see gun reform legislation, and we did. But Governor Mills, would you say that, that her response to this in terms of the types of reforms that she's proposing has been uh, rel relatively conservative? Yeah, Keith, so much so that I think there's been you know very little buzz about her proposals from either the gun rights or gun safety side of the debate. And while the governor's proposals feel a bit underwhelming to the gun safety side, they may well benefit from a neutral position from the gun rights activists. And that's because gun rights are typically, you know, they typically win the day in the main legislature. And it's why we have some of the most permissive gun laws in the country. I mean, gun politics are very treacherous in Maine because of the state's rich hunting tradition and rate of gun ownership. And so we've seen very little movement on gun control, even though Democrats control the legislature. And some of the issues pushed by activists uh, actually poll OK. It's just that they just have a hard time getting through the legislature. So let's go through some of what has been proposed and then maybe assess the chances of passage. Always a fun game. Uh, the governor wants to allow uh, for, for one police officers to be able to go directly to a judge to start the process of removing uh, the, the process of you know, determining whether someone should have guns if they're in a psychiatric crisis. But this proposal doesn't really change the steps that must be taken uh, to to remove a person's guns from them, right? That's right. So the, the governor isn't making uh, any changes to Maine, what's known as Maine's extreme risk protection order law, otherwise known or more colloquially known as a yellow flag law. Other states have red flag laws, which are um, a little bit less uh, cumbersome to, to use. 
But it, basically, those laws are used to confiscate somebody's guns when they're deemed a threat to themselves or others. What the governor is proposing is to make it so police can seek a judge's approval to take someone into protective custody and then begin the weapons confiscation process. I think it's a safe it's safe to call this a direct response to the Lewiston shootings because uh, since that tragedy, we've learned that police were aware of the gunman's increased paranoia and threats. But in at least one instance, they did not believe he could be taken into protective custody, which is the first step in the weapons confiscation process. So the governor's bill is designed to address that problem by giving police the ability to at least ask a judge if they can take someone into custody and then initiate the, the weapons confiscation process or the yellow flag process, which, in, you know, which again, is, is – uh, it is a little bit different than the 20 other states or so that have red flag laws. Has there been any uh, proposal to introduce red flag uh, legislation here? Well, I've seen a desire for such a proposal, and there have been some in the past, but I'm not aware of uh, aware of one in this specific session. That doesn't mean, Keith, that lawmakers won't introduce one or even try to amend an existing bill to include red flag language, that's always a possibility. And I know that's a priority for the gun safety activists because it would actually reduce the number of steps required to seize someone's guns. But such a proposal will also activate the gun rights side of the debate, which may ultimately make some of the politicians around here nervous, especially in an election year. The same goes for waiting periods and an assault weapons ban. You know, Gun rights groups do not support those. Um, and they've, those proposals have failed here, even with Democrats in control. So, you know, the gun rights groups will oppose those again if they were to come out. And without either support or at least neutrality from gun rights groups, political support from legislators may be hard to find even after what happened in Lewiston. And so do you, would you anticipate if, if nothing comes, well, in the eyes of uh, more progressive gun control activists, um, nothing comes out of this session that... There, there would be some sort of effort um, with uh, like uh, what, what, what might their response be, I guess, at the end of this session? Well, sure, they could try what they've tried in the past, which is, you know, using the referendum process. But, um, you know, that's certainly an avenue uh, available to them if they're unhappy with what comes out of this particular session. But what they've said so far about the governor's proposals, Keith, is that they're a good start. What I think they're hoping is that they can maybe use the current session to build on those or at least amend the governor's proposals, which we haven't seen yet in their entirety. There has not been uh, legislation submitted just yet. There's just been um, her state of the state speech where she outlined what she uh, plans to do. So once those bills get into the committee process, they can be amended or changed. And I think that's where the gun, uh, gun safety groups are hoping to make some changes to the governor's proposals. Kevin, uh, the governor does want to uh, require background checks for advertised private gun sales. So that means, um, what what is that? That 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 would not include, for example, just some person selling a gun to an acquaintance because it's not advertised. Yeah, that's right. So the governor is trying to distinguish her proposal from the background checks referendum that failed at the ballot uh, back in 2016. Uh, under the governor's proposal, family members, neighbors, hunting buddies, they, they wouldn't have to run a background check if they were trying to sell or transfer a gun to someone they knew. But if you were advertising the gun you want to sell, 
on say or in say uncle henry's either online or in the print publication or on one of the many other websites where you can sell firearms then you would have to run a background check on any any potential buyers she would also increase penalties for uh, what's called reckless private sales to prohibited people so what what constitutes reckless in this context and then who decides that so I suspect that's going to be the big debate uh, when this bill finally hits the legislature. They'll have to define reckless. I believe there are other laws on the books that do that already, but this is going to be in a unique context. The law already prohibits somebody from knowingly selling or, or uh, selling, uh, I can't remember what the exact terminology is, but something beyond recklessly selling to somebody who you should know is prohibited. But this adding this recklessly is adding another layer, and it's basically intended as a way for the governor to say, look, you need to think twice before you do this. Do you really want to risk potentially facing a felony offense by selling to somebody who you really don't know? So you better run that background check, because otherwise this could be this law could be applied to you. But again, the definition is going to be a big point of debate, and I anticipate there's going to be some pushback that the definition is too nebulous or open to interpretation by prosecutors. The governor would also create a statewide network of crisis centers for people experiencing mental health emergencies. And that would, would seem to address a central emphasis of the Republicans in their response to mass shootings, which is this is uh, about mental health and that needs to be addressed. Yeah, and that certainly seems to be the case. And there's a recognition, I think, on both parties that that investing in mental health, that's something we need to do here in the state. Um, you know, there's always that important distinction distinction that the people want to make sure is clear that people who have mental illness, but the vast, vast, vast majority of them are not violent, are not dangerous. So that's a distinction. But what the governor wants to do is put additional money into these crisis centers, which would be almost a way for police to take someone to one of these centers, rather than taking them to the jail or to the emergency room when they're in a crisis to get them help and to keep them out of the kind of the judicial process. All right. Again, the reminder to join the conversation, the number is 1-800-399-3566. Related to this gun issue, the Lewiston Shooting Commission plans to release its interim, interim report with recommendations before this session is over. We don't know what they'll have to say, but I was going to ask both of you what you've gleaned so far from the commission's line of, of questioning and the hearings that we have had so far. Kevin, do you want to go first? Yeah, so Steve and I have both been covering the commission. Um, I'll just share my initial impressions uh, that the commissioners spent a lot of time during the first meeting asking why county sheriff's deputies, why they didn't use the state's yellow flag law. Um, so I would not be surprised to see some recommendations either in the interim report or in the later recommendations relating to the yellow flag law. Perhaps that's what uh, Governor Mills has put forward. Perhaps it'll be different from that. Uh, when it came to the manhunt for the gunmen, they've asked uh, questions about the radio communication systems that police used, uh, who made decisions about where and when to search, and uh, why tracking dogs weren't used on the gunman's car right after it was found. So those are some of the big issues that I've heard. Yes, uh, Steve? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, what's interesting is I'm not sure if we, the commission has really foreshadowed what its recommendations might be, Keith, uh, you know, in terms of policy changes that they might support or recommend. Um, I mean, there have been times when the commission is just letting witnesses testify and make presentations without many questions at all. And also the commission has been meeting privately. Um, we don't know how often that's happening or with whom they're meeting. Um, but we do have a so all that's a way of saying we just have a limited window into its perspective. I think I suspect they they might have some recommendations, as Kevin mentioned, about you know um, you know making the yellow flag law easier to utilize or maybe even upgrading it to a red flag law. Um, but you know I think most of what it will recommend will be centered on what happened before the Lewiston shootings because that seems like the most fertile ground for reform, as Kevin mentioned, um, and. You know what what those recommendations are is really an open question at this point. So the the commission was able to to, to uh, it it sought subpoena power, and was able to uh, get subpoena power. Steve, where is that going to be most useful for it? That's a great question. I mean, unfortunately, the the commission hasn't been super explicit about how they plan to use this power, if at all. They have said that. They've run into problems getting people to testify or turn over documents, but they haven't been specific about who. Uh, there's been some hint that officials from the Army may be a target of subpoenas. And again, that's because the gunman was an Army reservist and the, his superiors were aware of his declining mental state. But again, whether those um, those subpoenas will be necessary with regards to the Army or you know Robert Card's superiors, I think will depend largely on the extent of the Army's cooperation without subpoenas, and also whether a separate investigation by the Army Inspector General, which is ongoing, uh, will reveal enough information for the commission to simply lean on the findings in that IG report. Because they could just, you know, if they're running into resistance from the Army, they could certainly use the IG's investigation in its ultimately its own report. Um, which will come out uh, sometime later this later this uh, later in the spring, I suppose. So, so how this has been couched as not necessarily a, a fault finding exercise, but might it not just end up sort of being that in the end? It could. I mean, it's it's hard to tell just from the way they've conducted the meetings, Keith. To be honest with you, just and again, we don't know how they're talking to people in private. We just don't have any window into that. So it's possible that you know they might exonerate some some folks or, or you know clear them of you know of not taking the right steps or anything like that. That's certainly a possibility. But I would be surprised if they don't find you know some um, some missteps here. And it's just I think how they frame the how the commission frames that um, will be very interesting, and and how that framing. Um, what that framing yields by way of policy recommendations is even a further intrigue. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we want to hear from you. The number is 1-800-399-3566. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Keith Shortall. And today we're talking about the latest news from the legislature. My guests are Steve Missler and Kevin Miller, Maine's Maine Public's political pulse team. And you can join the conversation as well. Email us at talk at mainpublic.org or comment on Facebook 
or on Instagram or give us a call 1-800-399-3566. On the line with us now is State Representative Maureen Mo Terry from District 108, which is a part of Gorham, and she's the House Majority Leader in her fourth term and has served as the House Chair of the Legislature's Joint Standing Committee on Taxation. Uh, Representative Terry, welcome. Hi, Keith. Thank you so much for having me. How so, are you? I'm good, thank you. You've heard you've heard maybe some of the conversation that we've been having here in the first section about the uh, some top issues here. But what would you say are the Democrats' uh, main priorities this session? Well, um, I think again we're going to uh, keep going back to housing, housing, housing. <laughs> we want to make sure that um, that all of the residents of Maine have a safe place to live. Um, um, of course, uh, our health and human services, uh, mental health, uh, public health, um, those are two of our top priorities. Um, and um, uh, child services, of course, are, are way up there for us. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've, uh, we're sort of talking about the same things that we've been talking about for a long time. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, we're... we're uh, we're still sort of going in the same direction that we have been um, for for quite a while now, and we plan on continuing that work uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks. Where do you see uh, are there some areas of compromise um, with your uh, colleagues from across the aisle that you're you're coming together on? Um, um, well, I think um, we have seen um, in the past, and I hope to continue that housing conversation. Um, you know, I think everybody, all all of our constituents, are telling us that um, they need uh, they need help with uh, lo- lowering rents or um, making sure that there are places for folks to live in. Um, making sure that our children are safe um, is another uh, big thing that I think that we can all. Um, take into consideration um, and making sure that there are enough mental health workers and um, and um, uh, that there are enough that we have enough to pay them as well. I think that those are all things that um, we can work across the aisle to get done. Um, we've we've had success with that in the past, and I hope that we'll continue to have success with that. And if there were one bill in particular that you really were looking forward to getting to the governor's desk, what would that be? Oh, my gosh. Um, I don't think that there's one bill in particular. I would love to see the supplemental budget go <laughs> go in a, in, a, um, in a bipartisan matter to have that uh, get back to her, uh, you know, with, um, with a lot of um, bipartisan support. I, I would really, I would truly love to see that happen. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, Representative Mo Terry, Maine's House uh, Majority Leader. Let's go. Uh, to the other side of the aisle and uh, bring in uh, Representative Billy Bob Falkingham, who is House uh, Minority Leader. Representative Falkingham, welcome. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. I'll just ask you the same question there. Uh, If if there were one piece of uh, legislation that you really want to make sure gets to the governor's desk, uh, what would that be this session? (laughs) Uh, Well, that probably... Probably that piece just failed in the House. We had a vote on an act to reduce electric rates. It was a bill that addressed the $220 million in additional costs that ratepayers are going to pay because of net energy billing, which is essentially uh, solar panel credits. We just had a vote on that, a bill that would 
factually lower electric rates for Mainers, and every Democrat voted against it. And uh, just shocking what's going on down here. Um, so I'm hoping maybe the Senate has a change of heart. My hopes aren't high on that. Um, and we get another crack at it down here in the House. But I, I just don't see it happening because the Democrats um, seem to have turned their backs on the main people. Uh, they've got a different agenda. And a perfect example of that irresponsible government spending was when we broke what I think is the biggest story of 2024 last week. Over $34 million is being spent to temporarily house asylum seekers. And it was a story that didn't get a lot of coverage. That was on just 2,200 asylum seekers. It's a a shocking number. Um, In one piece of this bill that was used from the emergency housing fund, over $56,000 was spent per unit. And we're uh, repeatedly here, housing, 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 that we need to do something. We just had a bill on housing that will do nothing to address housing. But here we are hemorrhaging this money to the tune of $56,000 per unit. Uh, and to be specific, this is to rent a hotel room for a year, $56,000 uh, for a single hotel room. You put a couple of these together and you can literally start building houses with the same spending. Now, I'm not saying that's the solution, but what I'm saying is almost any type of spending is better than this spending. We released the numbers that we we found out. And these are all coming from the the uh, government authorities. So these aren't numbers that we're just plucking out of thin air. We've been asking these questions and finally got answers. $13.9 million went to one hotel to house only 80 families. Now think about that. 80 families of asylum seekers. The state of Maine spent $13.9 million renting out one hotel for a year. Yeah. What could so, so, really be done to address housing? Well, I was going to so say for us, it's, it's as much about stopping bad policy, which we're unsuccessful at because we don't have the numbers. And the media is not letting the people know these numbers and this irresponsible spending that's down here. We're shouting from the rooftops, but nobody's listening. Well, they're listening right now. They just heard you. I was going to ask you, though. Oh, um, what what what's the what would be the Republican strategy for dealing with the asylum seeker issue? Well, we'd like to hear from the governor what the plan is because there, we've seen another sixteen million dollars has been put into this fund proposed in the supplemental budget. And uh, like I said, I could think of a million ways to spend this money. Our our homeless are languishing on the streets. We had in a committee hearing uh, a week or two back where a Democrat representative openly said on Mike that these people need to move to the front of the line ahead of our veterans. We have nursing homes that are closing at an astonishing rate. So while the people that have lived in Maine and invested in Maine and our country that have served our country that are aging and need to be housed in nursing homes and long-term care facilities, we have a massive uh, mental health crisis, a drug epidemic that's going on, and we're moving all of our problems to the back of the line while we're moving this asylum seeker problem to the front of the line and rolling out the red carpet. Some of this money that was spent was to build rent-free luxury apartments in Brunswick. So uh, um, one final thought from you. So again, though, you're saying it's a matter of priorities. Who should get priorities for, for spending? But what would you do with the uh, asylum seekers who are who are coming here who 
can't work at the top, uh, up front, um, to, uh, sort of don't have any other means than to uh, get benefits of some sort, and where, where would they live? What, how would you solve that problem, I guess? Well, the, the, you know, the real answer to that is why are they coming here? They're coming here because we're building brand-new luxury apartments, giving them two years of free housing. Keep in mind, this $35 million that I'm talking about out of this housing fund is only the housing component. It's not the hospitalizing component. It's not the feeding component. It's not all the other costs associated to it. So what I'm saying is this is a problem of our own creation. It's not like a problem is just dropped on us and we need to address it. Uh, Our homeless are languishing on the streets. We're not addressing our homeless in this manner. We're not building luxury apartments uh, for them. So if we if we weren't spending the money this way, we wouldn't have the problem. Yeah, I'm just going to bring uh, bring in uh, uh, Kevin Miller. Just has a question for you. Who's on our panel here? Mm-hmm. Kevin, go ahead. How you doing, Kevin? Yeah, good, good representative. Thanks very much. So I was there at the press conference last week when you talked about this and and you know mm-hmm. floated some of these numbers. And we actually did have a story on this uh, this morning as well. But I guess Thank kind of following up on I appreciate that. following up. Yeah, following up on Keith's question, I guess the, the challenge here is kind of what, apart from taking steps to try to discourage more asylum seekers mm-hmm. from coming here to Maine, because we do have more generous policies in other states, kind of what uh, what are Republicans right. putting out there as, you know, some firm examples of policies that you'd like to see change or, or you know, ways to help asylum seekers without drawing more here at a time when right. our system is already stressed? Hey, we're we're compassionate people. Mainers are compassionate people, and I think uh, almost universally, people accept legal immigration and think that it is great that America is a melting pot. All of our almost all of our ancestors, you know, came here from from somewhere at some point in time, and that's great. But why are we spending money this way, where we're generously rolling out the red carpet, building luxury apartments? This is what's causing the problem. If people, you know, land here and they're truly asylum seekers, it's our responsibility to house them. But we, we can find a more responsible way to spend this money than by spending $14 million to house 80 families. We've got some really great minds here in the legislature, and uh, we're not putting that to good use to spend that amount of money on this few families and this few, you know, rooms we can do better all right representative billy bob falkingham thank you so much for your time appreciate you being here representative billy bob falkingham the uh house minority leader let's go back to just kevin and steve you had a chance to ask him questions there but um just i guess any any further comment on um either uh, either 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 of the comments made by the uh, leaders yeah, I think I'll just add. I mean, it's important to keep numbers in context here, uh, and this is one thing that that uh, has gotten a lot of attention last week when the Republicans held the press conference. So that fourteen million dollars that went to the Saco facilities run by Catholic Charities of Maine, I spoke to Catholic Charities of Maine, and it can accommodate eighty-five families at any given time. So that's not fourteen million dollars to support eighty families, eighty-five families, as Representative just said. It's eight. It's fourteen million that's that's flowed to. Now it's up to 143 families. It's more than 550 individuals. And a lot of those folks have moved on to permanent housing. 
they also get uh, services when they're there, job job uh, training services, English language. Um, they help get help applying for asylum, applying for work permits. So I think that's important. And the other thing that the representative talked about, and he's right, there are new apartments, complexes that have gone up um, in Brunswick, South Portland, and Bangor that have used part of this money. And part of those apartment complexes are going to house some uh some asylum-seeking families, but I think the majority are going to Mainers, and this is through Maine Housing's programs. These are affordable housing apartment complexes, so while, yes, part of those apartments are being set aside for use by families right now, a lot of the other the parts of these apartments are going towards lower-income Mainers who are in need of affordable housing, so that's one important piece of context that not all this money is just going towards to, to benefit asylum seekers, but it is a healthy sum. You know, we're talking about $34 million. That's a lot of money. And I think that's why we're seeing this debate now at a time when there's a housing crisis all around the country, and especially here in Maine. Yeah. Also on the housing front, there were bills introduced to, for example, to prohibit uh, encampment sweeps. Um, This was primarily out of Portland, where we had several several sweeps of of tent encampments. Um, and uh, the city citing concerns about safety for the residents, but also for uh, uh, businesses and, and others in the community. But where has that gone, Kevin, that effort? The encampment sweep bills, I do not. they did not make it through the initial screening process. So those will not be heard this session. I think that debate is going to continue. There are other bills that did make it through kind of that initial screening. So there are going to be heard that deal with homeless and how to take care of our homeless and how to expand and improve our homeless shelters. So I have no doubt that that those that debate is going to take place within that context. Uh, but the actual encampment sweep bills did not make it through. I just add real quick, Keith, just one thing I picked up from Representative uh, Falkingham's uh, appearance here and talking about how um, he's accusing the Mills administration and Democrats of prioritizing asylum seekers while we have definitely have a homeless problem. Um, the problem with that framing, as I see it, is that the, the, the homeless population in, say, Portland is, a, is an entirely different issue. It's actually hard. It's the, the struggle for people in the city has been actually get convincing those folks that are camping outside to go into sh- available shelter space. So it's not like there aren't accommodations made for those folks. It's just that they're not in some cases they're not the folks that are living in encampments are not going to those spaces so it's it's a, it's an interesting sort of framing by representative frockingham to say that you know this the help for asylum seekers is coming at the expense of others but i think they're they're actually kind of separate issues um and they have different uh contexts and nuances that are not unfortunately not captured um in some of the rhetoric Okay, we're going to take another quick break. We want to hear from you when we come back. Our phone number is 1-800-399-3566. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Keith Shortall. Today we're getting an update on activity at the State House. Joining me, our Maine public colleagues, Kevin Miller, State House correspondent, and Steve Missler, Chief Political Correspondent. Share your questions or comments. Email us at talk at mainepublic.org. Or you can post on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. In the 
wake of the decision overturning Roe v. Wade, Governor Mills and Democrats, you'll recall, quickly you know, acted to strengthen abortion rights policy in Maine. And now this session, lawmakers are considering a proposed constitutional amendment guaranteeing a woman's right to access abortion. Steve, how is that measure uh, going? Well, I think, Keith, that the the prospects of that measure actually going to voters as a constitutional amendment are quite low, but the prospects of it being used in the legislative elections this fall are quite high. So a constitutional amendment requires final approval from voters, but before voters can get a chance to approve one, two-thirds of the legislature has to, uh, to, has to agree to send it to voters. Now, Democrats control the legislature, but they don't have super majorities to pass a constitutional amendment on their own. Um, they can hold a vote on it, though, and and that vote will be put will put Republicans on the on on the record as opposing the enshrining of abortion protections. Which I think, you know, that's that's a very salient political issue in the uh, in the aftermath of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and we've seen that issue, the abortion issue, and specifically access to abortion, the abortion procedure is um, Democrats have used that issue in elections to great effect. Uh, and we've seen that around the country. We've certainly seen that here in Maine. And I think, you know, the idea, uh, though, even though they, the Democrats don't have the votes probably to get the constitutional amendment to voters, they 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 will have the, the opportunity to use a vote, um, you know, in legislative elections you know, as they try to uh, to hang on to their majorities here at the state house. All right, let's go to the phones. Let's bring in uh, Paul from Rockland. Let's see. So we can bring Paul in. Hi, Paul. Hello? Are you there? Yes. Welcome to the program. Yes, go ahead. I am. Hi. Yeah. Just a quick comment on uh, Representative Falkingham. Um, you know the the adage of if you don't have a solid solution for a problem, then maybe you should keep the expression of that problem to yourself. And that seems to be the case. I often hear this gentleman going on and on, but seldom do I hear viable solutions. So just a thought. Okay, Paul, thank you very much. Um, I, I, is this not sort of um, those standard practice uh, in politics where if you are in the minority, um, you're you're better off kind of just taking aim at those in power as opposed to if I were if I were president, here's what I would do. Yeah, well, Keith, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think there's a reason why that's the case. It's, it's that because taking a position will open up you open up um, the, the position to crit criticism. You know, when you propose solutions, you can uh, end up getting uh, attack for those proposed solutions because they may not address what everybody thinks um, is the actual problem. And I think, you know, that's sort of uh, politics 101 these days. But on on the immigration issue, which is what is interesting to me about um, the, Rep the main Republicans taking that up as an issue is that, you know, in this press conference that Representative Fockingham referred to um, during his segment was that it was just a week after congressional Republicans torpedoed an immigration bill that would have addressed many of the issues that the main Republicans were complaining about, mainly overhauling the asylum process in a way that will actually make it harder for migrants to gain entry into the country. But congressional Republicans, you know, at the urging of the former president, 
and some right wing activists uh, decided to torpedo that bill. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been some open admission from some of them that they didn't want to surrender that issue because it's an election year and they believe that it might be of utility to them. So I think, you know, that might be a part of what's at play here. But, you know, to your point, Keith, I think, you know, the idea that, the you know, so when you're in the minority, you have to point out problems with the majority to, to at least begin um, trying to convince voters of, uh, you know, putting you in that position of the majority. And this All is right. Kevin. I'll just uh, just uh, chime in right real quick that the other policy challenge that Steve just mentioned there is that this is largely a federal issue. There is very little that states can do when it comes to immigration policy. There is definitely a debate to be had about how the state spends money to support immigrants and asylum seekers, and that's certainly the debate that we're seeing now. But this is a federal issue, unless, and until Congress decides to actually do something and move past the partisanship, we're going to continue to have these problems. I was going to go to Jim in Union, but I, Jim, I apologize. I think I may have uh, clipped your call, so please call back, and I will try to uh, work you in. Uh, Governor Mill. In the meantime, Governor Mills has a seventy-one million dollars spending plan. This is the uh, supplemental budget that would include funding for a number of issues: uh, public safety, uh, um, mental health initiatives. Kevin or can you give us just a little roundup of like what's the what the the, the top initiatives in there? Yeah, there's quite a bit in there. Um, it's a the state has a 265 million dollar surplus, I believe. She's proposing spending 71 million. As you, as you mentioned, there's uh, talking there about we already mentioned some of the mental health crisis centers that would get a, a sizable chunk of money. There's expanding the state police basically to allow them to go back to policing the rural areas where they've largely pulled back from. And this has been a big concern for uh, rural counties throughout the state. There is emergency housing uh, that, 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 we, that we talked about. There's also money in there for our K through 12 schools. There's not a lot of new sweeping initiatives because that's not a lot of money in there. Um, and let's, let's, let's go to the phones and then we'll come back to this. Uh, let's go to Tony in Yarmouth. Hi, Tony. You're on the air. Go ahead. Thank you. Good morning. The uh, points about asylum seekers coming to Maine, uh, one of the biggest challenges we have from an existential standpoint with the economy is we need to replenish the workforce. And if you take a look at the Bureau of Labor Standards statistics, the group that is the group that we're going to rely on for our workforce is diminishing. And by I believe it's uh, 2030, we are going to be in a deficit position in order to fill the jobs that are being vacated. Uh, by contrast, the group that is going to grow the greatest are those over 65, both inbound folks that are new to Maine as well as those who are retiring from the workforce. We need new Americans to come and fill those positions. Yeah. Tony, thank you. And that's a good point. Is there not a tension here uh, between, for example, uh, the, the, the business community, which looking for any any means possible to replenish its workforce, uh, including immigrants and possibly asylum seekers who are uh, you know, highly motivated to get into the system. Um, and sort of, on the other hand, stiff arm, and I'm saying business, but um, Republicans, conservatives, stiff arming that population at, at a time when we need this regeneration of um, the workforce. Uh, is there any tension well there? Oh, yeah, totally, Keith. I think, you know, I think, I mean, the business community, I mean, including the main state chamber of commerce has been, 
you know, part of this uh, uh, coalition of interest groups that's been pushing for um, reforming the asylum work permit process. Right now, when asylum seekers come to this country, they can't work for a minimum of six months after they apply for asylum. And sometimes it takes longer for them to get a work permit. And so, and that's one of the reasons why they're getting some public support because they can't work. They literally need, you know, assistance in order to, you know, just live, you know, live in a house or apartment or just get groceries, whatever. There's been that immigration bill that was in Congress would have overhauled that permit process to allow them, uh, allow migrants who seek asylum to basically get a permit um, when they when they cross and they get uh, gain entry into the United States. I and mean, Republican Senator Susan Collins negotiated that provision in the uh, congressional bill that is no more. So, you know, the caller has a point, and I think there are people, uh, business leaders and others that recognize that point and uh, see uh, new Americans as uh, potential um, helping solve the uh, labor shortage that we currently have. Yeah, Kevin? Yeah, and to Steve's point and, and to Tony's point, the caller, uh, there is a report out there that, that the Mills administration uh, issued, I believe it's about four years ago now, that talks about the need for 75,000 new workers in Maine because we need new workers to replace the, the retiring baby boomers. That 75,000 would come from, according to the administration, would come from all sources. Those would be professionals working elsewhere. Uh, these would be recent college graduates here in Maine trying to keep them in the state. would be luring new, new families to Maine. And part of that would be immigrants because they are uh, an up-and-coming part of our workforce. We do hear Republicans frequently use that 75,000 figure to say that Governor Mills wants to bring in 75,000 new immigrants to Maine. That's not the case. The Mills administration has made that clear that that 75,000 is kind of a, a much more sweeping figure, part of which would be immigrants. But that's but that's the reality now is as baby boomers retire, we need somebody to we need people to come in and, and take those jobs. Just a few minutes ago, we were, we were talking about the supplemental budget and in there, the governor wants to set aside a pretty significant number for uh, lack of a better phrase, a, a rainy day for I guess what they what she anticipates as a when revenues aren't quite as uh, robust as they are now. That would seem to be a fairly conservative um, stance to take, just in, in you know historically to set aside to save some money to to not spend it. And yet there's pushback coming from uh, uh, from her left and her right. Is that right? Can can you explain that? Yeah, I mean we're starting to see a little bit more of that. I mean again, uh, what this is aimed at doing is because we have the surplus and revenues have been pretty pretty good for a while, it's expected to flatten out. And she basically wants to set aside this money for next the next budget. Um, she's already getting some pushback, you know, kind of quietly so far, but I think we're going to start to hear it ramp up more from members of her party who say, look, we have this money. We have so many needs out there. We should be spending this money. We should be using it to meet those needs. Uh, there are Republicans on the other side that are going to say, look, we need to be, instead of setting aside this money, we should be giving it back to taxpayers. They've been pushing for tax breaks or some sort of tax cuts uh, for several years now without much success. So I think that's going to be the, the tension there is, is whether to set aside the money or to spend it or to give it back to Mainers. Uh, before we run out of time, I did want to just touch on something that is um, timely. We've got uh, Super Tuesday approaching, and for Maine this year, we have a semi open 
primary, and I wondered if one of you could remind us what that is. Yeah, sure. So, Kevin, uh, so semi-open primary means that if you are an unenrolled voter, you can vote in one of the party primaries. Um, so you, you can go and vote in the in the Republican primary for, for president, again, if you're unenrolled. And when you do that, you don't actually have to enroll in that party on the day. You just can show up and, and choose choose one of the primaries. You can't vote in both. If you are a Democrat, that does not mean you can vote in a Republican primary and vice versa. And we also have new smaller parties in the state this year. Um, so if you're registered with one of those parties, you can't participate in another party's primary. So you but you could uh, enroll in the you could switch parties. And there is there's a deadline for that. My understanding is that deadline is today. Am I right? Is that right? Actually, the deadline was yesterday. So if you didn't already, if you're a Democrat and you wanted to vote in the Republican primary, you missed that, that deadline oh, already. We're, we're a, the, day, a day late, literally, in this, yeah, in this case. Yeah, it was the 19th and most state offices were closed. So technically, you probably had to do it by the end of last week. And could you just give context as to wh why we did this? Uh, each state's kind of has its own way of doing this, but but there must have been a, a reason, and I'm and I'm guessing it had to do with getting independents more interested in the early stages of the game. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, Keith. That you know, there's been, I mean, well, first of all, independents or unenrolled voters are are about a third of the registered voters in the state, so they're a huge block. And I think the the uh, the openness to having a semi-open primary is designed partially to bring those folks into the fray. Because once you, you know, participate in a primary, uh, you know, a party primary, you're going to start getting messaging from that primary uh, from that party as well. And so, perhaps at that point, you know, you maybe you'd be more persuaded to stay a member of that party or to become a member of that party. So I think that's, you know, there's just a, a, a recognition by both parties that, you know, courting these independent voters and trying to bring them under their tent, their respective tents, um, is of use to them. Uh, whereas before, they kind of viewed these part of these primary contests as their own private uh, event. And that, you know, in order to play a part in that, you have to register and become part of that party. That's right. not the case this year. Yeah, excellent. Well, with that, we're out of time. Thank you both, Steve Missler, Maine Public's chief political correspondent, and Kevin Miller, Maine Public's statehouse correspondent. Together, they make up our Political Pulse team. Today's sound engineer was George Thomas. You can visit the Maine Public website, Maine Calling website, rather, to sign up for our weekly newsletter or to listen to past programs tomorrow on the program all about electric vehicles in Maine. I'm Keith Shortall. You've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.